Hello and welcome back to Shell October, a most irregular podcast. Once again, I'm Matty and I'm joined again by Christy. Woohoo! Uh, this is going to be quite a departure for us because it's going to be the first time we've done a podcast where we're not uh, thrusting media at each other uh, for largely selfish reasons. Um, it's actually going to be quite a quite a relaxed informal affair where we talk about. We're gonna have a chat. What? Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna just gonna have a chat like buddies. Just gonna rap. Um, uh, so, uh, what the crack is for this episode is that we're gonna we're just gonna talk about how we got into Sherlock Holmes, what brought us to this big omnidirectional mess that <laughs> exists. As you know, for want of a better term, the Sherlock Holmes fandom. So, uh, so Christy, tell me what what's your secret origin as, <laughs> uh, with with regards to Sherlock Holmes? Okay, I got into Sherlock Holmes for I'm going to really expose myself here for some of the most like Christiest reasons known to man I did it to spite someone <laughs> um, perfect and the person was my literature teacher so there's a story to be told <laughs> I will tell it now so <laughs> I'm a very complex individual uh, I had through like middle school and high school I had the same literature teacher this gentleman from South Africa who we didn't quite get along, get along, but I like his teaching style and I learned from him well. And then my senior year of high school, which is the last year over here in the US, he left and I got this surly <laughs> Canadian man <laughs> named Mr. Dubay. And me and Mr. Dubay did not quite get along. Um, I'm one of those people that I kind of crave. I want authority figures to praise me, but at the same time, I'm absolutely repulsed by that want of being praised. <laughs> so I don't know. I made the man's life a living hell, frankly. Um, and he was just this person that I just couldn't Wait, click with so him. You wanted your teacher to regard you as a worthy adversary. I did. It was very childish, <laughs> frankly. I, I, I wanted to be seen as a true, a true Moriarty, if you were, you know, very smart, very clever, very conniving. Did you at any point fight him on a waterfall? No. That's probably cool. just as well. I did play dodgeball and hit him in the head one time. <laughs> I'm, if dodgeball had existed in the Victorian <laughs> times, maybe that's what would have happened at the Reichenbach Falls. <laughs> yeah. I like how the story I'm Moriarty, though. I'm definitely Moriarty. <laughs> I think that's just you being very... I think that's just you sort of owning your truth. <laughs> Thank you. That's a really nice way to put it. Anyway, so he comes in, and he's just one of these people that every week he has a different book, and at like recess and stuff, he'd be reading his book and just smiling at us children. And I want you to know, by the way, I was 18 years old. This man was only like 24. Like, he's fresh out of college, getting a job at a private school that he doesn't need a teaching degree for because it's a private school over here. So, fresh out of college, goes to the local Hawaii Christian <laughs> school that's very tight-knit. I've had the same people in my class. My class only has 15 people to begin with. I've had the same people. I've been in the same class with them for, like, 12 years. So, it's like, I'm not new here. You're the new one here. <laughs> and uh, every recess, he'd be sat out there with his book and kind of just, I felt patronized because he'd, like, look at us and be like, oh, ho, ho, the children, you know, and he'd go into class and he only ever made us read books by male authors and i was just over it and uh the way i got back at him 
was I tried really, really hard on everything he ever assigned us to, like, be better than everybody else. Because for some reason in my mind, that made it, like, a dig somehow. <laughs> That's, like, his best people. <laughs> I got played. Anyway, um, so he started reading Sherlock Holmes. Mr. Dubay started reading Sherlock Holmes. And he was like, I really, I want to try to get into it, but I just, I'm not... It's not clicking with me. And I'm just an asshole. And I was like, oh, I like Sherlock Holmes. I've never read it before. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, which one do you like? And I was like, just bullshit. I just made shit up. And I was like, it sounds like Sherlock Holmes. I, I've seen a movie or two. I've seen the Granada series. I can pull this out my ass. So I did. And then I went home and I was like, do we have Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> my mom's like, I don't know. Maybe. So I had to go find it in like my family library and I read a ton of like Sherlock Holmes short stories in a day. And I was expecting to hate it. Because all year I've just been reading male stories about men written by men. And I was really, really begrudgingly enjoying it. Because <laughs> so much of like the Sherlock Holmes short stories in particular appeal to me. Because I like short story format. I like mystery. I like the characterizations. I can see in my head, you know, what's going on. I like the reveal. I'm very theatrical and dramatic myself, obviously. So a lot of Sherlock Holmes applies and appeals to me as it is. So that's how I started on Sherlock Holmes, was despite my literature teacher, who didn't like Sherlock Holmes. I was like, well, yeah, well, I do, so I'm better than you. <laughs> that's my story. That is the that is the most sitcom bullshit I have ever heard. <laughs> and I love it. That's... Right? It'd be a good it'd be a good pilot. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I'm I'm no stranger to having to <laughs> having to pull stuff out of my ass uh in in an <laughs> academic setting. That's the you know, the only qualifications I have I have because of my ability to do exactly that. But that that's that that's taken it to an entirely intense intense level, yeah. A level I couldn't even aspire to. <laughs> and you know what's that really dig me though is at the end of the year I got like, he gave me the big old stupid best writer in the school award or whatever. And it like applied to my scholarship and it like really helped me. And I was like, fuck this guy. That does, that sounds extremely complex. Just. <laughs> I know. As I said, I've laid myself bare here. People are going to be like, who is this crazy bitch? <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Good time. Opening up. Positive vibes. I kind of I I don't really have anything as uh, as interesting as spice to bring to the table, uh, but it's kind of already been mentioned. But I think my sort of first introduction to Sherlock Holmes was the Granada series, uh, which I watched when I was a kid because uh, I I've dealt with insomnia for most of my life for whatever reason. I've I've never been able to just go to sleep at night like a normal person. I mean, as we're recording this now, it is two forty one in the morning <laughs> where I am, and I'm and I'm wide awake. This is like. This is like my afternoon in terms of like relative time. Um, so I, I, I saw, I saw a lot of stuff on TV I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> and a lot of stuff that I didn't, you know, understand or have a frame of reference for. I watched, I watched a lot of crime shows. Saw a lot of shows about murder when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and one of those was, uh, I watched the, the Granada Sherlock Holmes. So I kind of, I'm one of those people that has kind of Jeremy Brett like hardwired in as 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 my sort of go-to visual association for Sherlock that, that's Holmes. That's my inner that's my inner Sherlock. And it's not because I was absolutely enamored, but I mean probably. That's who I see. Yeah, it's kind of it's a weird thing. He looks like Sherlock Holmes even right. though Sherlock Holmes isn't real. And even even if you'd never seen like the Sydney Paget um 
illustrations for the for the original strand stories it's like that's kind of who you'd picture you'd picture a yeah. guy who looked like Jeremy and his Brown. mannerisms i don't know that's just like when i read a sherlock holmes story that's who is in my head you know sherlock that's, yeah it's always been a kind of thing in my head it's like if your sherlock holmes doesn't look at least slightly like a vampire you're kind of doing it wrong <laughs> a little ill a little pale <laughs> yeah yeah um but it wasn't it wasn't just uh jeremy brett there was also wow uh okay you, you you're gonna have to come on a bit of a journey with me now uh christy uh we had uh, when i was a kid in the uk we had a, a children's character on the tv called roland rat uh who he was a puppet uh it was he was a rat puppet who his his sort of character was that of like a london wide boy I don't really, it, I don't really know how to describe it. It was, such, it was such like an eighties thing. He was this, you know, he was this guy, and he was like cool, but he was also like a rat. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, and his, um, his sidekick was another puppet called uh, Kevin the Gerbil. Um, <laughs> and uh, one, I think it was like a Christmas episode or some like a Christmas special. They did, a, <laughs> they did a Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, and that was my first For exposure to. <laughs> Yeah, you know, for 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 kids. Um, uh, so this like this rat puppet wearing a deerstalker doing this absolute send up of the Hand of the Baskervilles. That's kind of one of my earliest Sherlock Holmes memories. Um, uh, and also, also um, to, to be honest, it his his I have a confession, Christy. The only reason that my recommendation for you was not the Roland Rat Hound of the Baskervilles was because I couldn't find it on YouTube. (laughs) If I'd have been able to find that thing anywhere on the internet, that's what you would have been watching. My kids would have probably really liked it. (laughs) They probably would. Kind of, again, weirdly kind of interconnected with that is um, one of my favourite films when I was a kid was uh, Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Oh, yes. Which I think in the US is just called The Great Mouse Detective. Yes. For some reason, we got his first name. <laughs> we we had a much more informal relationship uh, with the Great Master Detective. If you've never seen it, somehow it's basically Sherlock Holmes, but they're mice. Everyone's mice, apart from Moriarty, who's a rat, and he's called Ratigan. But he's, <laughs> you can't call him a rat because he'll lose his shit and kill you. And there's like there's like a mouse society. There's like a mouse queen Victoria. Yeah. That Ratigan is gonna try and replace with a clockwork robot version. And it's, you know, it's basically Sherlock Holmes. And it's not just a kind of, like, weird alternate universe. Because they live under... They, they live, they live underneath, there, yeah. like, in the floorboards of 221 Baker, B Baker Street. <laughs> so there is, like, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And then it, like, pans to the wall. And there's a hole. And then there's there's a guy called Basil, who is the mouse Sherlock Holmes, who just happens to live in Sherlock Holmes's house. It's actually... It's based on a series of books uh, called Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. Yes. Uh, which, which I've read, and they are very good. But the same thing, it's kind of like, why? <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm I'm glad that it exists, but at the same time, like, Sherlock Holmes, but it's a mouse. One of, like, the only other thing I can really compare it to is Sherlock Hound, um, the anime. Oh my goodness. But that's a different thing. That's like, you know, that's Very one different. of your, that's like, your, you know, your cartoon animal universe where everyone's a dog, you know, but this is like... This is supposedly our world where the Sherlock Holmes stories actually happened, but at the same time there was like a mouse version of everything. Yeah. And it's 
it's kind of like your mind just kind of like extrapolates from there. It's like, is there like a mouse version of Dracula? Was that going on as well? But, <laughs> so I had, I was actually really scared of um, Basil the Great Mouse Detective when I was a kid. Uh, the movie. Because the last scene. Not, no, not even that. It was um, uh, one of Rattigan's henchmen is a bat. I think he's called Fidget. And there's a bit where he like pop. There's basically a jump scare <laughs> of yeah. this like bat, of, of this hench bat. And the properly fucked me up when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know why. Probably because it made me jump. I didn't like it. Um, and it was loud. <laughs> Basil the Great Mouse Detective was, was one of my first, like, I think it was, it was one of, it was definitely one of the f- first Disney movies that I saw. Uh, it was, it was that and Robin Hood. Oh my God. I love that. Movie. And if you're noticing a theme, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, weird kind of like kid oriented Sherlock Holmes media, which, there's kind of always been, from what I could see. It's one of those things where it's like, these things, this this is something that's always appealed to kids. Even though a lot of the time it's about, like, quite grown-up things like murder and adultery. Um, but at the same time, watching, like, the, the, the proper grown-up version that is a labour of love, where they wanted to commit, you know, capital T, capital C, the canon yeah. to the screen. Well, the Sherlock, like, motif or even a character just dressing up like Sherlock appears in so many cartoons. Just, like, even for just an episode or a bit or a scene or, you know, a reoccurring thing. Like Animaniacs, Looney Tunes, Tiny Tunes, you know, any of the stuff, like, when we were growing up. And even now, like, the cartoons my kids watch, you know, a character will put on a deerstalker or put a bubble pipe in their mouth or, you know, do the whole bit. So it's it's interesting and fascinating, really, how much Sherlock permeates into children's media like on muppets you know and uh oh yeah and uh and sesame, sesame street, street. Uh, uh sherlock hemlock yeah that's one of the really interesting things about sherlock Holmes is the fact that, that it's kind of like it's it's kind of like him and dracula in terms of like characters, characters that... you know without even having any point yeah. of original canon reference or like car- you know to the point where like they kind of codified what people think of when they think of like you know of a detective or mm-hmm. a vampire. It's like the most simple, break, broken down building block of any other vampire, or any other detective, or any other, you know, procedural <laughs> at all. Um, there is actually a there's, there's a story. Um, there's a writer that I like called Paul Cornell. Uh, he's written uh, comics, novels. Uh, he writes for TV. Um, I think most people would probably know him because he's written uh, episodes of Doctor Who. I know he wrote. I don't know if he wrote any for Christopher Eccleston. I know he wrote some for David Tennant. And it's like several, I was going to say a few years ago, but it's actually several years ago now. Um, uh, the BBC had, they probably still have it, I'll, I'll check it out. They had like a Sherlock Holmes section uh, on the BBC Worldwide uh, website. They had some Sherlock Holmes short stories. I don't know if they were like written specifically for the site, but or if they were just sort of like culled from other places. But they had, you know, they had like a collection of them and they... Uh, all got like illustrations. There were some very good ones. There was one by uh, Kim Newman, who's quite. He's another sort of like famous like nerd, <laughs> nerd stuff writer. He's a he's a film critic, but he's also written uh, like vampire novels and stuff. Uh, and he wrote a story that was basically um, it was a Sherlock Holmes story, but instead of being about like Holmes and Watson solving a crime, it was about Moriarty and Sebastian Moran committing a crime. Um, it was kind of like you know a sort of an inverse like approach to it and there was another one that was like from the point of view of mrs hudson where it's like <laughs> what she has to deal with but the the one that paul cornell wrote i've actually found very interesting uh it was called the deer stalker and it was basically 
Holmes and Watson get captured by the CIA, like the modern CIA, and they've basically gone into fiction and captured him. And he's uh, he's faced with this like task force. They're led by Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> okay. And like it is like a task force. I think I think one of them is, I think it's like one of them is is Alice from Alice in Wonderland. I think it's her, uh, and another one is uh, Dracula. They all keep kind of like flitting between like different personalities like at one point dracula becomes the count from sesame street <laughs> so they're kind of going in and out between their different media representations so like alice might be the disney alice and then she might be the book alice and she might be yeah it, it the thing that they work for is it's called uh, the decontextualization core and they're, they're basically they're they're trying to decontextualize sherlock holmes it, it's almost kind of like they're trying to like capture him i'll have to read it and I'll see if I can find a link. It's probably still up. So the it's called the Decontextualization Core, and they're trying to like decontextualize Sherlock Holmes and thus like make him work for them or something. I'm not quite sure, but um, it hinges around the fact that um, Lee Harvey Oswald wants Sherlock. He gives Sherlock Holmes a deerstalker and tells him to put it on, and Holmes is like, "Why? This is you know it, this hat has a very specific function. It's for going out in the country in the rain. You know why? Why would I just wear one?" like in in the city and he's like because it's a sherlock holmes hat and it's like well how is it a sherlock holmes hat it's like because you're sherlock holmes and that's the hat you wear it's a it's a bit of a trip but uh one of the illustrations for it um because because all the stories that they got were, were illustrated by different artists uh, and this one was illustrated by uh a guy called disraeli who uh he did a comic called scarlet traces which um with ian eddington which is a sequel to the war of the worlds and he also they also did like a comic adaptation of war of the worlds and one of the illustrations that he did for this story is uh, Holmes and Watson. And it's like Holmes examining the deerstalker hat that he's been handed and Watson's sort of standing next to him. And then behind them is just like this like mosaic of different versions of Holmes and Watson. Like, you know, Holmes and Watson as women, Holmes and Watson as dogs, Holmes and Watson as <laughs> robots, Holmes and Watson as Tom Baker and a Dalek. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes has been so adapted occupies such a like a huge place in popular culture to the point where he is like you know the visual shorthand for a detective is a man you know in in like a cape and a deerstalker hat with a big pipe it's true it's like even even my two-year-old could probably be like oh yeah like recognize that imagery which is (laughs) crazy (laughs) i mean i can't think of a lot of other characters or in my house, even a religious figure that my kid <laughs> pinpoint, you know, <laughs> like that, like they could Sherlock Holmes or Dracula. It kind of is just those two, isn't it? Which is, um... I'm trying to, I'm desperately trying to think of like another one I can't at the moment. Um, I mean, you get close with like Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan or Robin Hood, but not quite as predominant. Yeah, because even if, because even if he's, because again, that like, you know, because that's like a cultural thing, like because if you said like an outlaw. Oh yeah, it'd be different. If you say like an outlaw, an English person would, you know, might picture Robin Hood, whereas like a person in the US might picture like a, like a cowboy. Yeah. You know, and like a Japanese person might think of like Goyo Manishikawa and, you know, bandit, people yeah. like people like that. Sherlock Holmes is so like weirdly universally Well, that's popular. one of the other things is it that's exactly it. Is he's so the character is so permeated not only through English speaking world but the entire world. <laughs> Like, Sherlock Holmes is popular in Korea and popular in Japan, and not, like, as, like, a cool Western thing to be into, like, just a straight-up, just as much permeated in their media as ours. 
one one of the things that I was thinking about maybe recommending to you was the Sherlock Holmes Wuxia movie. <laughs> oh my god. Where he kung fu fights against Moriarty using a violin bow as a weapon. Oh, that sounds so good. I'm going to have to <laughs> Watch I'll try and that. I'll I'll try and remember what it's called. Um, I'm surprised I don't already know it. <laughs> Frankly, it's messed up. You know, even during the the Cold War, there were like TV, sh- you know, Russian TV shows. Oh yeah, the Russian show, show- Yeah, it's like that's that's such like a, a thing where it's like even at this time when, you know, it seems like everyone wants to do their own version of Sherlock Holmes. They do. Okay, right now. Right now, I don't know if it's still airing, but there is a, this is what I originally really wanted to suggest to you, but it's not fair because I haven't seen it because I can't get a hold of it and I'm absolutely mad about it. There's a NHK series, which is a channel in Japan, a puppet Sherlock Holmes story. So they're oh all puppets. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And they have very distinct puppet design and it's Sherlock Holmes and Watson and their students at a school at a boarding house and it's kind of a creepy boarding house and weird things happen and they solve the mysteries and Moriarty is the headmaster and it looks amazing (laughs) but I cannot get a hold of it at all in any way other than like vague clips on YouTube that aren't subtitled I'm like come on Why, why did you make me? Why did you make me really want this unobtainable thing? Because I'm suffering, and you get to suffer too. That's what friendship is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess you're welcome. Um, I, I mean, I, I already had one of these. <laughs> the game Daigyatoken Saiban, uh, which has been translated into English as The Great Ace Attorney, which is like a prequel to the Phoenix Wright games. Someone, some fan, they have someone's got to have like a port of that in English. <laughs> You'd think, but like at the moment, there's no real 3DS emulator. You have to like use like SD cards and put it in your yeah um, on all the 3DS, and it has yeah. to have like not had a certain fir- firmware update or something. But um, there's there's basically they made a Victorian era uh, Ace Attorney game with Sherlock Holmes in it, and he's like a silver haired anime pretty boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I know with, exactly like, what you're talking a, about. I'm trying to yeah. play that game too. <laughs> And I need I it. About and now, it I, now I need two unobtainable Sherlock Holmes things from Japan. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of Sherlock Holmes stuff. Like, you got Conan, Detective Boy, Boy Detective. <laughs> Conan. Yeah. He's That's, basically you know. Sherlock Holmes in a boy body. <laughs> per- perpetually forever. <laughs> 200 episodes, boy body. <laughs> it's like, it's got to the point now where he should he should be, like, his original starting age again. Body. Yeah, just, right? he should Poor be a teenager guy. again. Oh man, puberty twice—that'd suck. The thing that the thing that I recommended to you for our Sherlock Holmes special of the records is is, uh, a, is a TV movie about Sherlock Holmes being cryogenically frozen. And I don't know if that's like a common trope in things because the only other thing I've seen do that is uh, Sherlock Holmes in the twenty-second century, which is a cartoon that was on Sunday mornings over here that I absolutely loved. Uh, even though it was dreadful, I'm aware um, of this one. It's I don't have you seen it at all? I've seen like the opening on YouTube. I might have to try and find like full episodes to inflict to inflict on you because it's just crazy. Uh, like what Watson's a robot? Because uh, because basically what it is, it, it's again, it's you know Sherlock Holmes cryogenically freezing himself this time being <laughs> awakened in the 22nd century, as you might be able to guess from the title, and he's like one of the the character is um. It's like Lestrade's 
great-granddaughter and she's american and she has a robot and she's a police officer and she has like a special like police issue robot that she has basically fed all of the sherlock holmes stories into and imprinted like watson's personality onto it Uh, and then they find sherlock holmes and you know get him out of his like jelly because i think he was he was like suspended in royal jelly or something because because bees (laughs) (laughs) they put him in some kind of like future rejuvenation thing that makes him young again (laughs) and he's like he's like surprisingly blasé about being in the future he's like "Mm, yeah i guess isn't it is it not weird that there's this robot that has the personality of your best friend quickly adapts to the idea of a robot yeah pretty much it just like i guess like he could infer the idea of a robot um and like they they give the watson robot like a mask like a rubber mask of watson's face to wear and it's like but he's got like it's like he's got like so this like flesh mask face <laughs> on his robot body and he just like puts a coat on and i'm like that's some like proper uncanny valley shit the only way you're getting away with this is the fact that it's a cartoon set in the future it's like you just kind of it's one of the things where i'd look at sherlock holmes and be like why are you okay with this you should be a wreck this should have this should have psychologically broken you that that kind of thing of of, like bringing sherlock holmes into the future or the or the pretty like it's either that i think that's the only thing i've seen where they've gone it's not so much bringing sherlock holmes into the present and you know, how would Sherlock Holmes live now in our future world? We, we, we get with shows like Sherlock and Elementary, but it's like, fuck that. What if he was in the future? <laughs> I needed no shit. <laughs> uh, there's actually, there's a really good story uh, that, I, that, I, that I, I know is online and I can link you to it. Scientists from the future uh, kidnap Holmes and Watson from the past and basically sit Holmes down in front of in front of a machine that can basically beam the internet into his head. Oh lord! To like catch him up on everything, and they basically um, it, it kind of hinges around what's known as the Fermi paradox, which is we've been broadcasting radio waves for well over a hundred years now. Radio waves are some of the easiest like to detect, and given the size of the universe, there must be intelligent life somewhere. So basically, where are the aliens? So they basically kidnap Holmes and Watson from the time stream. <laughs> sit Holmes down in front of the magic internet box that beams it into his head and goes, right, find out where the aliens are. This is, like, the biggest missing persons case of all time. There's, like, billions of people that we that should be there that aren't. Find them, please. If... Is it the improbable adventures of Sherlock Holmes? It's in that. It, uh, the improbable adventures of Sherlock Holmes is a short story collection. I think I've um, read... Like, I might have rented that from the library of our... Yeah, it's it's a really good book. I, I own a copy of it, and it's got like lots of different. It's got like very different kinds of like Sherlock stories in. Yeah. Some of them are just like straight. Um, some of them are pastiches. Some of them are like send up. Some of them are like just like straight. You know, like Sherlock Holmes stories that could have been written by Arthur Conan Doyle but weren't. Um, my favorite one in that collection is the story where it's kind of like UFOs, where it it's kind of like crop circles and like UFO hoaxes and stuff. And uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is in it, and he's kind of like <laughs> he's kind of like the Mulder to to Sherlock Holmes's Scully, um, because obviously Conan Doyle was big into his paranormal, like, you know, yeah, yeah, spiritualism and stuff like that. And he's like, maybe it's aliens, and Holmes is like, it's probably not aliens. 
that, which is kind of a it's it's kind of a weird thing. Because one thing that I that I think we kind of have to talk about is the weird relationship that Conan Doyle had with Holmes, in that this is the even now it's the thing he's most famous for, but he's he you know he like he didn't want it to be. He he, he like it's it's sim- a, a similar thing happened uh, with Agatha Christie with uh, with Hercule Poirot, mm. where she didn't she didn't actually like him, she didn't actually <laughs> like him as a character. And um, I think the same is kind of true of Conan Doyle and Holmes because it's like apparently one of the things um, towards the end of his towards the end of his life, one of the things that Conan Doyle absolutely hated was meeting like full grown ass men <laughs> who would tell him how much they loved reading yeah, Sherlock Holmes yeah. when they were boys. It's like, <laughs> hey, fuck face, you. Just his stink face, be like, really? He's like, why would nobody read my Brigadier Gerard books? Like, because they like. <laughs> Because they, so like Sherlock Holmes. Cause they like Sherlock Holmes. Because they like the detective stories. Fuck you. <laughs> it always reminds me. Okay, so there's like most things in my life that reminds me of a musical. There's this musical called City of Angels, and it's about a writer who has this famous character, and he's trying to kill him off. And <laughs> this character comes in and just disrupts his whole life. And he's, they sing a duet together, and it's called You're Nothing Without Me. And the the writer singing about how you come from my inkwell, you know, you'd be nothing without me. You only say words I put in there, you know, you're a projection of me and I'm your creator, so I'm better. And then the character is always singing about how you're jealous of me. You wish you could be me, you know, <laughs> I'm the one that's famous. I'm the one that gets the recognition, not you. People know my name, not your name. And so I always think of that when I think of <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> the song, uh, you're nothing without me from City of Angels. <laughs> It's great, YouTube it. Oh, well, absolutely. That sounds perfectly the kind of thing that I would enjoy. Weirdly, I can't think of any Sherlock Holmes musicals. I. You think there'd have been, like, you think there'd be, like, a really super famous one? I imagine writing a Sherlock Holmes musical would be really hard. <laughs> Ironically. I know that it has to exist. There's no way there's not some Sherlock Holmes musical. Let's Google really so- quickly. Oh yeah, someone at the very least has done like *Hound of the Baskervilles* on ice or it's, something. It's happened. Sherlock Holmes: <laughs> The Musical is a musical based on the characters created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, with music, lyrics, and book by Leslie Bur- Burkus. Who are you? Who's Leslie Burkus? You, you are listening to someone falling down an internet rabbit hole. In I, real time. I am. Hold on, I got I got distracted. As composer and lyricist, <laughs> scored the notorious box office film flop *Doctor Doolittle*. Oh no, Leslie! I love you, Leslie. <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> Oh, okay. Anyway, so she wrote a Sherlock Holmes musical. I'm going to have to get a hold of it. This is very exciting for me. Yes, indeed. Is it just called Is it just called Sherlock Holmes the Musical? It's or called they... Sherlock Holmes the Musical. <laughs> it's not a good start, Leslie. I'm so sorry. Yeah, because um, li- uh, Lionel Bart, the guy who wrote Oliver, yeah. basically he put all of his money on his Robin Hood musical. Which he called oh, Twang. Yes. You know, at least at least call your Sherlock Holmes musical like Sleuth or something. Yeah, spice it up. Shoot. Okay, so we're gonna have to investigate that later. <laughs> Absolutely up my alley. I mean, if Stephen Sondheim did a Sherlock musical, I'd probably die. He wouldn't, but if he did, <laughs> I'd probably die. Maybe I can talk Lin Manuel Miranda into it. Tweet at him. Hey, Lin. <laughs> You know what's cool? Sherlock. <laughs> you should definitely write about that. <laughs> like someone has it already suggested to him 40,000 times, probably. 
that that that's that's kind of the beautiful thing about Sherlock Holmes, like you know, about being into Sherlock Holmes. It's like there's so much, and it's like oh, there's yeah. so much that it's impossible to get all of it. Yeah, I mean, you you can be hardcore and still someone be like, "Have you seen this?" And be like, "Oh no." <laughs> <laughs> And everybody has those. It's one of those things. It's like comics. One of my favorite things about comics is I always talk about it in such a weird way, but it's like the journey. Everyone has their own path that they take discovering comics, and that really, really influences their understanding of these shared characters and these shared storylines and myths and origin stories and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like Sherlock Holmes is really similar to that. It really depends a lot on like the journey someone has had through Sherlock, the uh, canon the stories or you know derivative media that really really influences their understanding of the character and what they will allow with the character it's kind of interesting in terms of like wider fandom stuff is i'm pretty sure like the 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 fandom term canon meaning you know the accepted you know like agreed upon quote-unquote real happenings in a work i'm pretty sure that origin originates from sherlock holmes it very from, well might, in the fan sense. People sort of, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was like, you know, Holmesian scholars, where they first started kind of like, kind of like self-deprecatingly <laughs> referring to, you know, the, the bibliography of Arthur Conan Doyle as it relates to Sherlock Holmes. They started referring to that as the canon because the, it was kind of like a wink and a nudge about like, with the reverence that they were treating these, yeah. you know, what was supposed to be just like disposable detective stories for you know a, for christmas annuals and a, and a magazine you know it was never supposed to be this like revolutionary thing yeah i don't the... think when he was writing it because he didn't write it to for the stories to compound on each other necessarily but that's absolutely what people do that, that's you know argu- arguably precisely why it was so successful because you can just you can pick up any random sherlock holmes story and, and read it in pretty much whatever order you want there's yeah I mean, so like, if if you read the adventure of the empty house before reading like the previous story where he dies and goes on the run for like ten years or whatever, <laughs> it's like you might be a little out of your depth. But um, for the most part, you can just like pick up any random one, and you'll have Holmes and Watson, and someone will come to the rooms and be like, "Hey, my shit's fucked," and Sherlock Holmes is like, "I will unfuck your shit." Yeah. Over the course of the following story, and then Watson is like, "And then he did the end." <laughs> That really is like the wonderful thing about Sherlock Holmes is just how much there is and the weird stuff that you find. Like, I remember when I found it, when I first found out about Sherlock Hound, I was just like, okay, I get, sure. I, I'd, you know, I'd been, I'd been primed for stuff like that as a kid because we had, um, in the UK, we had uh, Dog Tanyon, which was an adaptation of The Three Musketeers, but everyone was dogs. Oh my gosh. Um, and we also had uh, uh, Willy Fog, which was around the world in 80 days, but it was like, you know, animal people. So Sherlock Holmes uh, as a dog, that wasn't like, that, that, that wasn't a tremendously like hard sell. It didn't take a lot for me to wrap my head around that as a concept. But then like properly out there stuff, probably like over 10 years ago now, uh, I was in London and I went into Forbidden Planet, which is like the big uh, comic book comic store. store. And I got a book called Shadows Over Baker Street, which is a collection of short stories, which is basically a mashup of Sherlock Holmes and H.P. Lovecraft's The Cthulhu Mythos, <laughs> which it, it hasn't had like the, the scope 
you know, it hasn't had the impact on, like, wider culture that Sherlock Holmes has, but I think in terms of, like, nerd culture... Yeah, for sure. For want want of a better term. And it's probably referred to as a culture because it's full of germs. (laughs) Like, Lovecraft's, like, the Cthulhu mythos has had that kind of impact, so there's a reason that, like, Holmes and Cthulhu... (laughs) People tend to like pair that up a lot. It it, it it's they kind of really the... do, and it's one of those things I don't quite. I mean, I'd rather just say I I do understand, but I don't. It doesn't appeal to me personally that much, like Sherlock <laughs> Hound does <laughs> a lot. But yeah, uh... I mean, I I I you know I I've tried I've tried to read Lovecraft, and I e- even it. with even without the even without the racism, which you know <laughs> is kind of like the elephant in the room he's just not that good a writer <laughs> uh but i, th- I think i think it, it kind of it kind of appeals to people in the sense that you have sherlock holmes who is like he's like the paragon of logic and you know human intelligence triumphing and then you have like lovecraft stuff which is and you put him in front of that and say okay make sense of that we are like, but yeah. specks on the galactic winds <laughs> Yeah. There are intelligences that would, you know, that we can't conceive of and stuff like that. Most of the stories in the collection, they were really, really good. And I think it's it's the same reason that, like, people do often, like, send Sherlock Holmes up against supernatural things. Because, it's you know, when when you have, like, the guy who's, who's maxim is when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And it's like, what if you can't eliminate the impossible? What if, you know, what if you have to, like, fundamentally rewrite what, truth, yeah. what you think you know about reality i see the appeal in that i mean i i it's one of those things where like i i hate using the phrase i get it but it it, it is one of those things <laughs> because like you see it on the shelf and you're like but why and then i stop myself and i think about it, i'm like okay no i i understand because i know this character i don't know so much about this but i do know that this character would be fucking ruined by this <laughs> So I see the appeal. So it's very, very interesting. I probably should take a dive and actually make an attempt to read some of those type of Sherlock supernatural stories, which I personally actually always have avoided. (laughs) It it kind of reaches an like ridiculous zenith. There's a book called All Consuming Fire by Andy Lane, which is Sherlock Holmes plus the Cthulhu mythos plus Doctor Who. Oh god. <laughs> it is a Doctor Who novel where the doctor and his companions meet Sherlock Holmes. And what, which they, doctor? Uh it was the uh it's what they called the Virgin New Adventures, which was which was after the uh the TV show had ended in nineteen eighty nine, but before it the T V movie in nineteen ninety six. So it was that kind of like period where Doctor Who kind of existed in books. It so it's uh yeah. Celester McCoy, it's the seventh doctor. But it also features cameos by the first Doctor and the third Doctor. Of course it does. But uh, the third Doctor is in the Diogenes Club, uh, reading the paper. <laughs> doing, he's, he's, he's doing a crossword, which is kind of fucking everyone up because crosswords hadn't been invented. <laughs> right, so it's Doctor Who book and then, it, and then Sherlock Holmes. Okay. <laughs> I can't believe it. There's so much happening already. <laughs> but, and then the Cthulhu mythos. It's like, that's so many things. <laughs> Just one of those things is so much already, and you, you're doing three of them. Oh my god! It it sounds really weird, but that's actually one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. I bet. Just, I mean, it's like when Sherlock uh, when Sherlock Holmes meets the Doctor, he takes an instant dislike to him because he can't deduce anything from him. 
because he's like you know you, you have the calluses on your fingers that a typist would have um but you don't have the one on your thumb from using the space bar so it's like he can't like conceive of like why anyone would like push but i think it's supposed to be that like you know operating the tardis console yeah. you know and he's got like clay on his shoes from another planet and and stuff like that and like you kind of get the feeling that like at various points in the book the doctor is just straight up messing with him because like there's a bit where he's in a park uh he's, he's in one of the parks in london with watson and it's it's you know there's a storm sort of coming up and it's very windy and the waters and the lake in the park are very choppy and the doctor sort of says something very sort of portentous and he lowers his umbrella and when his umbrella uh touches the water it becomes completely still and um watson kind of like freaks out a little bit and goes back and tells holmes it's like you know the, this man the doctor he's got you know supernatural powers and then holmes refers to the fact that they found uh oil in the umbrella stand after the doctor had visited them and it's like i think you know i think you'll find that he actually had like a reservoir in his umbrella that contained oil and then he you know he put the oil on the waters and it Wait, that's yeah. an, an, an old trick of like you can calm the surface tension of water by putting yeah. oil on it and then later on in the story, you know, Watson has to hold the Doctor's umbrella, and he checks it, and it's not hollow at all. There's there's nowhere that the oil could have come out, so he's like, what? But by that point, they're on an alien planet, I think, so... <laughs> That's a minor footnote. But it's kind of interesting. What, the thing that I like about that is the fact that when they do go to another planet, Holmes essentially shuts down, because he's just so completely removed from anything that he's familiar with whereas Watson is more it, it's kind of it's interesting because it shows Watson being more adaptable Watson's well, just Watson like, would be an amazing companion he's already pretty much functioning at that level I think I feel Watson's out of his depth a lot of the time <laughs> so he's already like all right sure we're here now cool <laughs> goes yeah. with it and Sherlock you would know, not respond to that at all there's so much going on in that one book <laughs> It depicts Holmes and Watson so well. Again, the beauty of, of, of Sherlock Holmes as a concept where you can just kind of like pluck the characters out. I think put... we're prime to, because, you know, again, Sherlock appears in kids' media just all the time. <laughs> it really, he really, really does in different forms and references and things like that. I think we're primed at this point to be willing to just put pick up the character and put them in a setting like, you know, a different planet and pretty much go with it because at that point that's what we're doing all the time anyway you know i'd hesitate to say that like i'm, I'm you know t to say that the home stories are, f are formulaic you know that that's like a very emotive word and it often tends to get you know it tends to be used to you know dis disparage a work of fiction by be saying negative, oh, it's, for yeah. it's formulaic but the home stories kind of do have a formula but it's 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 one that's like it's it's almost scientific in us in you know in a sense in terms of story structure where it's like you take these methods and apply them to this and then you get that outcome. And um it it's kind of it's always made me think of like um magic tricks. Like, cuz like sometimes if if you if you find out how a magic trick's done, lots of people go, "Oh, well that's really, you know, that's that's so obvious." And it's like, "Is it obvious?" cuz you just had to have it explained to you, so it couldn't have been that obvious. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a I think there's an element of that to Holmes's character where once he explains to people, like the steps that he went through to arrive at the conclusion, where everyone, you know, I think it must have come up in this. It's it's come up in like some, like Sherlock Holmes story that I've read where people have gone, oh, when you put it like that, it's so obvious. And it's like, 
and yes, I'm the only one who does put it like that, and that's why I'm Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Where's my violin and my cocaine? Um, <laughs> well, one thing about Sherlock, I mean, we could get into versions of the character we like and versions of the characters we don't, character we don't like, which again, I think <laughs> is important to our journey with the media. Um, but I like Sherlock Holmes when he doesn't just, you know, do the deductions and explain everything for praise. I like it when he kind of coaxes people into being interested with him and he'll always ask them first, what do you think it is? What do you think? Why do you think, you know, why would you think that? I like that aspect of the character a lot. And that's kind of the defining moment for me when I read books sometimes. Uh, if they don't have Sherlock being more of a teacher and more of a showboat, it kind of tips the line for me on if I'm going to really jive with this version of Sherlock or not. That's the thing. I mean, um, I know we, we mentioned it uh, in the previous episode, uh, but um, the Mary Russell series by uh, Laurie King is essentially has Holmes, you know, like his like first like relationship with the main character, Mary Russell, is as a teacher. He is teaching her the science of deduction. And it's kind of, it. it's a role, you know, it's one of those things where you think, why haven't more things put him in this role? Because it's a role that he's, you know, for, for all that he's, like, can be, you know, difficult. sardonic and, and antisocial and difficult. He occupies such an obvious, like, mentor role because it's like, he's kind of like almost like, in in the books, it's like without quite sort of meaning to. He's kind of mentoring Watson. It's like that's what it always feels like to me because he's the first to, cons- to consult Watson. He never just straight out says when he knows. He always turns it into a conversation. He always turns it into a back and forth, and he he pokes and prods Watson to get to where he is on his own before he ever just you know tells him the answer, which is something I enjoy. And I'm sure that comes out of the fact that you're an author writing a story and you want your readers to. <laughs> slowly get to the point rather than just you know here's what what it is here's what happened um but in in time that's created the character dynamic that i really like is the teacher-esque aspect and in the mary russell stories i think that's one of the better depictions of holmes because it cultivates that idea rather than you know he's just antisocial kind of jerk who doesn't like anybody it's actually he really has a deep reservoir of respect and love for humans and people and he's just not very good at maintaining those relationships because of his other interests and things like that. I think if uh, Sherlock Holmes is written well, when you kind of you get the impression that he he wishes that like you know, every police officer in the world was like him, yeah. Because then you know the obviously there'd be less crime, but there'd be less for him to do. I think there'd, there'd be like there'd be less pressure on him to to solve everything. Um, there is. I know that there's there's a line in in the first Mary Russell book about uh, a child being kidnapped, and they sort of they bring him in, and it's because like the child's mother's insisted, and he kind of he says you know like they've tried everything else and nothing's worked, so they want they want a miracle worker, so that's why they they basically they drag him out of retirement, yeah, because they don't know about his failures, because because like Watson didn't write those up as much. That was one of the best parts of the the first Mary Russell book is when he confides that he doesn't like doing those cases because people only ever hear about his successes and they assume he is, again, a miracle worker when really there's been times where he hasn't solved it in time 
and you know people get hurt and it weighs a lot on them um one of the one of the best and shortest stories in uh the improbable the improbable adventures of sherlock holmes is where uh holmes and watson they like go into a guy's house and see him and like see like the owner like the i think it's like they're they're by someone's house they've been called to the house for some reason like i think it's like um the the daughter of the guy of the guy who owns the house is like my dad's been acting weird can you come and check it out and they turn up at the house just in time to see the guy being murdered by himself <laughs> and then like disappearing into you know a room that has you know it's got one door and no windows and he goes in the room and then they open the door and he's gone and the story just ends they're <laughs> just like well <laughs> shit i guess we'll never know um, <laughs> that's awesome it's, it's just one of those things fuck it <laughs> uh sorry sorry your dad got killed by himself um we have no idea or whatever we can tell you who did it but there you go (laughs) you kind of wonder if the author's gone i can't be bothered coming up with a mystery plot so fuck fuck you sherlock holmes and by extension the reader you'll never know okay wait we got it we got to get into the wonderful thing called subtext about sherlock holmes and john watson I'm sure I have no idea to what you're referring. <laughs> you have no idea. No, I have. I have every idea. I I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's one of those hotbed topics <laughs> that people get really riled up for one way or the other. I obviously, I feel like this is I'm, I'm very pro Sherlock John shipping, whatever you want to do. You know, but I, I, in my life, I've come across people that are like, it, it's, it's not even, it's not even people that are really into Sherlock Holmes that just completely reject the idea outright, you know, without maybe even being that big into Sherlock Holmes stories or film or shows or snippets or fanfic or whatever. And that's always really fascinating to me because they have this idea of, well, John's you know, the kind of doddering older guy and, and Sherlock's the smart one and they solve crimes and that's it. And I'm thinking to myself, that's so boring though. Can't you read these stories? <laughs> dig a little dig a little deeper in there? And uh, I was just wondering, how did that come about for you? Was it brought to your attention? Did you see that there yourself in the various things? Like, what, what, what was the journey? I've been into Sherlock Holmes since I was a kid, but it wasn't until... I actually like sat down and started like to read the the stories from start to finish because I got I think like we we were at you know I was out with my family one Sunday and like I would always find wherever we were I would always find the bookshop and I found this like discount book place that would like you know warehouse clearing stock where yeah. it's like we've got so many of these just you know price them like absurdly cheap just get them out the door so we don't have to look at them again um I bought like I I bought some like blind bagged, just like stapled, closed <laughs> carrier bags full of like Marvel comics, just like random issues. Uh, and I also got uh, the complete Sherlock Holmes, but I got it in this like form where it's like the size of a, f- it's like a phone book. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's like a big one. paperback book, and it's got like you know double columned text within. That was the first time because because like I'd read, I had like you know like ra- random collections of like you know various stories that have been pulled from like the different books um but that was the first one i had where it was like the complete sherlock Holmes. it was like the first time i got a copy of the complete works of shakespeare yeah this is the whole thing in one 
volume. It's like you can hold Sherlock Holmes. This is all of it. Um, that was the first time I read A Study in Scarlet. Uh, which was kind of weird because it's like half of it's not a Sherlock Holmes book. Yeah, the whole first half is about Mormons. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but yeah, so th- that was when I first sort of like actually like sat down and read like Sherlock Holmes start to finish. Uh, and the kind of age that I was, I think I was like 13 or 14 when I was reading it and I was like having awakenings um, <laughs> like in myself. And I think that was like the first time I read it where it's kind of like, this actually makes a lot like this story would make more sense to me if there was that subtext where it's kind of like if if there was like yes not quite sure how to sort of how to articulate but like if there was that kind of like evolution to their relationship i mean obviously like that's the thing people you know like one one of, one of the arguments you hear against it is like well conan doyle would never it's like i don't give a fuck he's dead yeah Fuck him. You're even vastly if he, even misreading if, this experience. Even, even if he was alive, fuck him. If that's not... It's like, death of the author, bitch. It's not his anymore. He gave this to me. It's mine. It's it's, it's one of the... I mean, I, I've read, like, so many things. You know, and, peop, and people say, like, like, oh, you're just projecting. It's like, well, yeah, maybe I am. Isn't that what fiction's for? Yeah. Hey, help me. You know, it's like, when you read a work of fiction, like, in theory, it should, you know... It could help you understand yourself or the world or concepts or anything like that. Again, it's one of those things that, like, it's one of the reasons that fan fiction gets the kind of shitty reputation that it does. Where it's people, it's like, oh, you just make everything gay. It's like, well, maybe if, you know, <laughs> if, if, so, if so much of what constitutes classic literature wasn't just all about dudes and, like not very much in the way of emotions that aren't to do with violence and war and killing like shut up <laughs> it's like it does it doesn't matter ultimately i can imagine like Holmes and watson like domesticity yeah, where they're like with like sharing a bed very easily done i mean in the in the western english speaking fandom history a lot of male partnerships on television in particular, but then also, you know, comics and TV and and film, I mean, and all kinds of stuff. Because there's a prevalence to have two male characters with no female characters around at all, there's actually this ongoing, now by now, older theory that a lot of male shipping, like Kirk and Spock, Starsky and Hutch, you know, stuff like that, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, um is it basically people trying to contextualize a lot of different things at once. And a part of that is very simply, how can this make more sense? And that's usually the answer is, oh, they love each other. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's all. That's the first step. You know, then you're done. That's it. That's all I really need. And uh, I was, like, seven when I saw my first Star Trek episode. And within, like, minutes of Kirk and Spock being on screen, I was like, oh, they should kiss. Like, that's just my brain, how it worked. I was like, oh, that makes sense to me. <laughs> Let's see if this happens. And it never did. And I was like, no. <laughs> but then I discovered there's answers to that. And that's kind of like the first big read-through I did of Sherlock. I got kind of the same vibes. And it's this very surprisingly deep disappointment when it doesn't happen. Cause you, And I knew it wouldn't. But it's, it's still, <laughs> you still have like this really deep from inside you being like yes (laughs) 
<laughs> but it doesn't work that way. So I, I think the subtext makes a lot of sense. I mean, from I had, a lot I had of a, people. I had a similar thing, like growing up reading um, a lot of like uh, French comics. A lot of French comics are about like two dudes who hang around together all the time and do everything together, and it's like. It kind of feels like they. It's one of those things where it's like they might as well be in a relationship. They they do everything together. They go everywhere together. If there's no female characters, to the point where it's blaringly obvious that it becomes that these characters are willingly not making contact, not communicating, not being around women at all. You know, I mean, <laughs> it makes sense. It's not like a hard, weird leap. That's why I'm always like irritated when people are like, oh. Well, that's you're just you want to see it. I'm like, well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Quote Jerry Seinfeld. But at the same time, the text itself is doing some mighty fine implying all by itself, you know? So that always kills me. That cracks me up. Especially with Sherlock Holmes, because it's the one where everyone goes back and forth forever and ever. It's kind of similar to uh, the, the writers of classical antiquity sort of arguing about the Iliad. Yeah. about like Achilles and Patroclus like who who was the Seme and who was the Uki um, if you want to use those terms it's like <laughs> it was it was basically you know these two guides were definitely shagging but how um, yeah. and when let's, and let's it, read and find out it's one of those things where it's so it's so like difficult and, and there isn't really a definitive correct answer because it's like you know could you make the case that you know Watson refers to being married, but it's like, could you make a case there that he's doing that to kind of allay, you know, people's suspicions because of the society that they lived in, where it would seem, you know, odd for for two blokes to live together and hang around together all the time. So maybe it was kind of like, you know, you could make a case that like Watson re- Watson's referring to his marriages as a diversion, as as like a smokescreen, yeah, as like. You know, have I mentioned I'm heterosexual today? <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time, it's like the the thing you get that is like, well, then you're, you know, you're erasing one of the few like actual female characters that exist in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, I know it's a rock and a hard place, isn't it? The obvious answer is polyamory. <laughs> yeah, and and you know what? God bless the Sherlock Holmes fandom because that's a lot of times the answer you get, and it's awesome. But. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me of so the guy Richie Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law I've seen the first one I haven't seen the second one those movies in particular are very upsetting because they they lay heavy on the subtext and they're cowards and they don't <laughs> follow through you know and it, it it's one of those things where Is they're, they're trying gone. to have a cake and eat it yeah, you could have gone the polamorous route if you wanted to. You already did this wild and wacky movies, you know. I I just, it was, I was so viscerally almost offended by it. Because it was, seems so obvious to lay it on so thick. And then to just turn around and be like, oh, but he married the, the one female character we have named in the series. Like, it's just, I don't know. It really bothered me. A lot more than in other shows and movies. Because it was so deliberate. And the, yeah. the actors even say, like, they they were directed to be like that. So it's like, but why? <laughs> like, why? To, to what end? That? Yeah, what madness is this? <laughs> I just wanted to complain. <laughs>
like it's 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 a byproduct of male writers not writing that many female characters it, in it this really shit. Is. It's like, like look at like Lord of the Rings, <laughs> like the like the majority of the character pairings that people like in Lord of the Rings are same sex and they're mostly men because most of the characters in Lord of the Rings are men. It's like you know, I mean, and honestly, it feels like it's usually people making do with what they have. You know what I mean? And that's why like, it's always irritating when people are like, well, you want it to be gay. And I'm like, well, yes and no. Like, I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. Look at look at what I'm working with here. <laughs> what do you suggest I do exactly? Shut off, you know, my own interactive enjoyment? No, I'm not going to do that. It was the thing, the thing that, like, surprised me is kind of like, when the first time I read Lord of the Rings, I thought you were supposed to think that Legolas and Gimli were an item. Right. Because, you know, it it tells you in great detail, like, who everybody marries, and they don't marry anybody. And then Gimli, like, goes to elf heaven with Legolas on a boat, because that's how you get there. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 like, and shit like that. And it's like, they're obviously a couple. And, like, to find out that people are like, no, they're just good friends. It's like, I mean, I guess, but at the same time, are no. Are you shitting me? And there's kind of an element like that with, with Holmes and Watson where, for me anyway, these characters make more sense when, even if they're not a couple, but for, like for that, like like for those feelings to exist between them. I think, oh, that's you know, my favourite. That's my favourite is when they have feelings and they can't act on them because I'm a weirdo. <laughs> that, that's the thing. It's like, like Holmes and Watson like being together as a couple, it's like, you know, in the context of the society that they lived in, yeah, that would present challenges. But at the same time, it's like them even realizing what those feelings were would be a mo- like, mental feat. Like Holmes probably wouldn't have like the mental architecture to even process the fact, you know, like the idea of being in love with with anyone, much less Watson. You know, like Watson definitely being the kind of you know the 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 kind of like, the very sort of like masculine sort of archetype that he was. You know, he he was he was a doctor, but he was also a soldier. Mm-hmm. Like he is a man of science, but also of fighting. <laughs> you you don't necessarily have to have them, you know, have that domestic bliss kind of thing. Although I I do like like to the think, fluff. Yes, yeah, I do like to think of that as like the idea of like you know Holmes and Watson holding hands in front of the fire. I like the well, idea of stolen like moments. Is... Like they're still very, they allow certain fluffy things once in a while. Like that's one of my sweet spots because I don't read those characters as being like overtly romantic, but I do see them as being caring for each other. Yeah, you could have that, and I often do like to to think of that. It's, it's you know it's 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 a you know it's a very pleasant sort of like mental exercise to just think of like oh, um, <laughs> but at the same time it's like you can have that kind of you know. You can have the characterization where Holmes and Watson essentially like they do love each other. It's just neither of them has the kind of context. They don't have like the the they don't have like the right knowledge of the right concepts to even like process. Progress. Yeah, like to just process the idea that they might, you know. With, and you know, it's not to say that any one of these approaches is better or worse than the other. It's just like. They're they're both sort of like really interesting. It's like it's one of those things that kind of sucks about human history. <laughs> it's like yeah. whichever way you slice it, it's gonna like it's gonna be shitty for them in some way. <laughs> um, and I can understand why. So you know that doesn't appeal to a lot of people because like you know dealing with shittiness in your day to day life, you know, a lot of the time the last thing you want is to like relive it again in your fiction. And that's why there is a place for 
you know, like the the fluffiest side of things. Yeah, and that's... it's great. It's just it's funny because whenever you some not whenever, but in my experience, having suggested that even just like fun conversation online or even in person, some people are just venomously against it because they see it as an intrusion on the characters understanding of the characters intentions and then as who they are as people you know within the stories and how they present themselves in the stories and stuff and it's part of me is always like well then we just have had very different (laughs) understanding of these characters i think is what's happening right here or even you know in the cases where people don't have any solid real opinions about sherlock holmes other than they're not gay (laughs) Like they haven't read yeah, Sherlock, it, they haven't watched Sherlock Holmes, they haven't done anything, they haven't done any legwork at all. But they know for a fact that <laughs> that's not who those characters are. And I'm like, do you? Weird. Listen, buddy, you don't have a horse in this race, okay? Yeah. So sit down and shut up. It's like I'm clocking um, down a lot of reading time on this one, guys, and I'm telling you right now, it's not that insane of an idea. Wait here, I have a chart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have my I have my wall of crazy with like the threads linking up various things. Um. Again, it's one of those things where it comes down to like how willing you are to buy into stuff like Death of the Author. I highly doubt at any point Conan Doyle, when writing the stories, was like, yes, obviously they're in love. That doesn't make it an invalid reading of the text, though. That's yeah. the whole point. It, it's, you know, it's the difference between reading and writing. It's like, once an author has written something it's kind of not theirs anymore in any sense other than, you know, the, the the rights that they have, like, legally to it in order to sustain themselves as, like, living people who need, yeah. like, money to exist in a capitalist society. It's like, but it's like in the sort of, in the intellectual sense, once you've written that book and it's out in the world and it, it's in, as soon as you give that story to one other person, it kind of, you know, it's become something bigger than what than the story that existed in your head and you kind of have to be prepared for like readings of it that completely like fundamentally disagree with what you you know intended when you wrote but it it's it's one of those things like pe- people who say like Holmes and Watson can't be in love because that's not what Conan Doyle intended it's like I refer you to my earlier remark of fuck is dead I don't yeah. care <laughs> and even if he was alive I wouldn't care. Me reading Sherlock Holmes stories with the idea that Holmes and Watson are in love, that kind of really doesn't have any tangible effect on anything beyond that instance of me reading the book. It, it, it's I'm not using sorcery to change it into real. Like, <laughs> I'm not affecting your experience at all. I'm not wearing like some kind of cerebro helmet. <laughs> to, to like rewrite every single copy of the book that exists in the world. I'm I'm not Charles Xavier over here sitting in my sitting in my big <laughs> freaking room with my helmet on, changing the past, going in the future, doing whatever. You know, I'm not influencing anything. I'm just sitting here reading. Like, calm down. It's okay. Segwaying into so, I think you know how I feel about Stephen Moffat in general but that issue was one of the bigger things where i was like you know what fuck this guy (laughs) so if you don't know stephen moffat is part of a co-creator with the sherlock bbc series and after the explosion of the first season 
Um, obviously, lots of people were shipping Sherlock and John Watson. And it got out to him that people were doing this. And he acted like a big old baby, saying, that's not what the text says. And that's not what we're doing in our show. And I should know because I made it. And, and I was like, oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> like, that's my response. And it was just like the most stereotypical whining woo-wah I've heard about this exact same argument <laughs> since I was in, like, high school. So I just wanted to get that out there, that I hate that approach to understanding media in general, let alone Sherlock freaking Holmes. Yeah, when, when like, hundreds of people have probably gotten their thesis from writing uh, like L LGBT like takes on like Sherlock Holmes as a character and as a book series and as a concept and then all of that stuff it's kind of you know you, you should always like think twice before attempting to psychoanalyze really anyone <laughs> especially like famous people that you don't know but Stephen Moffat kind of strike he just strikes me as the kind of guy who he's into some nerdy shit, but he's insecure about the fact that he likes nerdy shit, and he doesn't like the nerd approach I to things of, and especially just, like the the female nerd approach to things, where it is I, more sort of transformative and yeah, I just I don't analytical because he seems again I don't know the man, but he seems to th just thrive off praise and people liking what he writes and doing what he does and getting really doing the whole intense fanish scene in response to his stuff. But then he always seems to get in these big dumb <laughs> beefs and quarrels over <laughs> what they're doing. And it's like, no, no, no. You're over there on the other side of the screen. Mind your fucking business. <laughs> you have no power or like anything over here in my little hole. Like, get out. <laughs> You're not wanted here. <laughs> like, I've taken my prize and I've scuttled away already. Please stay on your side of the line. Like, that's what it feels like. It's a very visceral, like, <gasps> what's he doing here? <laughs> Get out! <laughs> you know, kind of reaction. And I've, very few times I've had that reaction to a creator. Well, he's he's done it to me like four different times. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> stop popping up. Stop it! <laughs> um... The, there's a guy on YouTube that I like, and I think I've uh, I've possibly pointed you towards this before. But there's a guy on YouTube that I like called H Bomber Guy, and he did like a nearly two-hour sort of video <laughs> essay called Sherlock is Garbage and Here's Why, where he touches on a lot of this stuff, and a lot of it is to do with, you know, what he perceives, and and I kind of agree, are Stephen Moffat's like, like the, the areas of writing that aren't really his area of expertise. That's probably the sort of most diplomatic way I could put it. But at one point, he had, he does actually say sort of of Stephen Moffat and of Mark Gatiss, uh, the, the sort of the co-creator of the BBC Sherlock, is like, they don't seem to understand that people could be invested in a mystery and want to try and solve it themselves. It's It's kind of like the way it's kind of depicted is like in... Like between... I think it was between season two and three whichever one it was or was it one and two i don't know the whichever one where sherlock holmes dies at the end of, like he supposedly so dies at the end of this yeah like where he supposedly like dies at the end of the series and then he comes back and there's like there's all like kinds of like different theories about how he could have done it and stuff like that and ultimately it's kind of like 
you're not kind of shown how and you're not really it's kind of like the, the approach of the story is you're not really supposed to question it you you know you're not supposed to ask how it was done you're supposed to ask why which, which is like, by the enough. way is a completely fundamental in my view misunderstanding of the character who would walk someone through what he did I, how he did it I, I don't think that's an unreasonable criticism to make of that approach but it's like if you look at how they characterize people wanting to know how it was done they characterize them as oh, you know yeah. as I like you have know, some conversations there my friend <laughs> as like you know as like loser nerds and it's like you're talking about people wanting to solve a mystery it's like that's kind of why people like stuff like sherlock holmes and you know like sherlock holmes and poirot and miss marple and like murders of the rue morgue and stuff it's it's, it's the appeal you know it's partly the appeal <laughs> of mystery novels or like mystery stories murder mysteries it's like here's like a puzzle in story form and we're gonna just... give you all the pieces and see if you can put it together and it's fundamentally just just annoying to be invested in something someone's made and to like it and let them know and they know how much you like it, but they just go ahead and turn around in the next season that you've waited three years for to go, oh, got you. You guys are dumb for investing in this. Ah, we're not going to explain it. Anyway, <laughs> like, <laughs> how rude. It's just straight up rude. It's mean. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't just wait all this time for you guys to like make me a butt of the joke it's one of the few times i felt like personally victimized by a media i was like look i put up with a lot of shit already from you people and now you're gonna go around and do this to me how rude i can't believe it it is one of the adult (laughs) it's like I, i i don't think that's an unreasonable like reaction to the approaches that they've taken to a lot of what they've done i, I think I mean, it's i think it's a little silly i don't have to be like that but that's just who i am uh, i you know i invest heavily in stuff and and bbc sherlock is one of those things where it came to me at a certain time in my life where i just i really i wanted to like something and i like sherlock Holmes stories and i liked the shininess of it and i liked the quickness and the, the this kind of silly level of <laughs> everything that show is and so to be invested in it and to like the fandom and read a bunch of fics with those particular versions of those characters and stuff and to have, you know, conversations with my cousin and, like, my uh, sister-in-law and stuff like that about how, you know, how do you think Sherlock did it at the end of season two? And so just that first episode was just so, or the third season was so, like, a kick to the gut. It felt so mean to me. And I don't know if that's just because I'm too sensitive or what. But but that was really where I was like, you know, I don't need to take this. This is such crap. <laughs> and I, I, I know I'm not the only one. That was kind of the downhill there. I certainly, th- I certainly know that this is true of, of both of us, and I imagine it's true of a lot of other people, but it's probably why, like, one of, the, I think, I think I would enjoy uh, Elementary, regardless. Oh, yes, let's segue there. But... I think the reason that I enjoyed Elementary as much as I did is because it was doing the kind of things that I was hoping for from the BBC Sherlock, you know, because, uh, like, the, there is, like, the, the stuff that happens in, in in Elementary that, like, when Sherlock, like, the first episode of Sherlock on the BBC when that came out and I watched it, I was kind of, like, I was imagining, like, oh, when, you know, I wonder if they'll do this to update it like oh you know this would be a cool thing and like some of the stuff that i imagined 
did actually turn up in elementary. So maybe I just like it for reasons of narcissism. I don't know. <laughs> but I imagine it's mostly to do with um with Lucy Liu. And the fact that it's just incredibly well written and like it feels you know, it ob- obviously in terms of structure, it's like, you know, twenty five episodes of a, you know, commercial hour long episodes, yeah. Yeah, of you know, of you know, per season as opposed to, you know, three hour and a half episodes of like you know, a publicly funded thing of Sherlock. You know, they are sort of yeah. like, they're fundamentally very different, but it's like, yeah. elementary does more stuff that I like. Sherlock feels like an adrenaline shot of character and development and ridiculous stories that you could possibly cram into three episodes that are like, what, roughly two hours? Something like that. And elementary, it's such a weird way to describe it, but elementary feels like it's like the most gentle, warm, Earth Tony, Sunny Day, murder story, mystery show you could watch. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, that's how it feels like to me. And it, it's very kind, a very gentle show about Sherlock Holmes and Watson. And it's fantastic. And it has really long haul character development. And it dips into the types of, you know, short form Sherlock Holmes stories, what makes them appealing. Some of them are super outrageous, some of them are so simple, and a lot of them wrap up before the show's even done and you have moments of just characters talking to each other and experiencing, you know, what they just went through. And I was so thankful when it came out because I had such massive whiplash <laughs> from Sherlock <laughs> that I was so happy to have this very 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 different type of show that reflected a lot more of what I personally like in Sherlock media and and what you know I, I how I interpret these characters god bless it you know like decoupling it from the idea of being a Sherlock Holmes show the writing in elementary I think work like works for me so much better because I guess like that it feels like there's more emotional weight to everything like it like the, there's more consequences for actions absolutely i mean that's the whole basis of the series i think for like for me it's the the way that um sherlock is written in sherlock kind of cleaves too close to like the approach that a lot of writers take to writing batman that i don't like which is he always wins and he's always right he always has a quip and he wins even when he loses because he's that good yeah whereas like in elementary it's slightly more like this is a catastrophe that walks like a man and (laughs) fucks up more often than he doesn't and you know he's he's trying to do something good and productive almost in spite of himself i like in elementary how sherlock is it's hard to explain it's not simply just because he acts like an asshole and he gets called out on it though that's awesome (laughs) But it's more along the lines of, if you're talking about adaptation and adapting something, it's nice to see that this character, this Sherlock Holmes in elementary is in a modern era where people will be like, you can't say that, you can't act like that, you know? It's this very subtle reaffirming of, one, when someone acts like this, you can't tell them it's not okay. And two, it's a nice context for 
here's Sherlock, he's in the modern times, and yes, he's getting told off. Like, <laughs> you know, I thought that was fantastic, and they've been very consistent with it, but they've also grown the character where he, it happens less to him now because he does take to heart, you know, these things people have told him over the course of five seasons and stuff like that, and it's that type of character development that makes Elementary amazing, and it has all these amazing, very, I want to keep using the word gentle, um, approaches towards ideas on substance abuse and addiction and things like that that I know when they announced elementary people were like oh well you can't turn Sherlock Holmes into into a junkie you know you can't have that be the main defining characteristic of the character and I always thought that was really weird like why not though (laughs) obviously yeah I mean like Conan Doyle was writing in a time before a lot of the like the effects of using something like cocaine were really known exactly so that's part of the upgrading for the adaptation of being in our time i thought that was very clever it would be a big part of it now because you know this is not an era when you can walk into a pharmacy and buy like a quart of cocaine because you're a gentleman (laughs) yeah uh that'll calm the shakes but kind of like it's like segueing again um the sort of the first thing that i that kind of came across that i came across that was was kind of like that is uh the seven percent solution by nicholas meyer um i don't know if you're familiar with that at all i'm not sure it sounds uh, familiar nicholas meyer uh he's a he's a writer and uh director right you know the star trek films that everyone says are the good ones yeah. Of, with the original series cast. He had a hand in all the good ones. And <laughs> the ones where he wasn't involved are the ones that people tend to say are not that good. Um so he he wrote and directed uh Wrath of Khan. Uh I think he wrote The Voyage Home. Uh he wrote The Undiscovered Country. He he wasn't into Star Trek, uh, but he was into Hornblower and stuff like that. So that was kind so of the He impo- can adapt well, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's it's, it's Hornblower, but it's it's, similar, space. Yeah. it's fine. And uh, he's also a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, and he wrote a he wrote a novel which he also turned into a movie uh, called The Seven Percent Solution, um, which essentially uh, <gasps> it's the one what... with Freud. Yeah. Okay, I've seen the movie. It's uh, Nicole Williamson and Robert Duvall, I think, as Holmes and Watson. Yeah, Duvall. And is it Alan Arkin as Freud? I think so. Yeah. Holmes turns up at Watson's house, completely off his nut on yeah. cocaine ranting about Moriarty and then when Watson brings it up again Holmes is like he doesn't know what he's talking about and then Watson gets visited by Professor Moriarty who it turns out is just a mathematics professor who taught Mycroft and Sherlock when they were boys and Holmes has like developed a fixation on him and (laughs) Moriarty's like either you tell your mate to back off or I go to the papers about how your friend Sherlock Holmes is a coke fiend so they, so uh, Watson and his wife and uh, Mycroft essentially trick Holmes into going to Vienna, yeah. and then when he's there, they're like, "Hey, this is Sigmund Freud. He's going to cure your dependency on cocaine, hopefully." Um, and you know, and there is like a mystery. There's a mystery plot as well. Uh, Maya, he also he, he wrote like other Sherlock Holmes, but uh, the seven percent solution is kind of it's it's a story that someone would have had to tell had to tell at some point because it's like you can't use cocaine and the yeah and and get away with it basically yeah 
it's like um and th- they did the, the thing on um in the granada series they kind of had oh sort of homes like symbolically like bury a syringe and like part of that was was jeremy brett was concerned about kids like me who who liked the the granada homes stories like he didn't necessarily want to be like hey kids look what i'm doing like yeah you know, and i've been like shooting up god bless so jeremy the, brett yeah uh, so the seven percent solution is it's 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 kind of it's a very very odd home story. I remember story. really liking the film, even though it has Sigmund Freud in it. He can you know do one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't say anything because it's Sigmund Freud and it's what he wants. So I can't tell him to go do what I want. Because, yeah, it's anyway. like the ghost of Freud. Like, ha, I win. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna give him that, but uh, you can get get out of there. But you know, it's okay. I still enjoyed it. I could go for a rewatch. Or actually, I should read it. Put it on my Kindle. It, it it's a very good book. Even even you know, it it's got like like a mystery plot, and it does have like an exciting like Sherlock Holmes type plot. But it's also got like Holmes being psychoanalyzed and talking about like his his past and stuff. And Which is a good um, time. there's even there's like there's even stuff like it, it's 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 a thing that writers can't seem to sort of forbear from doing. And I kind of blame comic books, but. There is a scene where they're just like they're on a train traveling to Vienna, and they just happen to bump into like the guy who's uh, what's his name, uh, Rudolf Rassendil, the main character of *The Prisoner of Zender* by <laughs> Anthony Hope, which was like another novel from that sort of like time period. And it's like a completely like it has no bearing on the plot. It's just you know it's the author's like, hey, I've read this book. Wink. Um, they, that's what happens in the Mary Russell books every once in a while. Doesn't don't they run into Raffles once? I think they mention Raffles. Oh. Um, it's always mentioned. <laughs> Raffles is kind of an interesting thing to touch on because uh, he's a kind of like antithesis of Sherlock Holmes almost in that yeah. he is like, you know, he's committing crimes rather than solving them and was created by uh, <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. Or... And it's kind of like a weird thing because like he's also kind of a ripoff of Arsene Lupin. Yeah. By, from the stories by Maurice LeBlanc and it's like who actually had there was kind of like a little bit of legal trouble because in the Arsene Lupin books they actually had Sherlock Holmes as a character and he gets owned yeah <laughs> by by Lupin and um Conan Doyle was what like wasn't having it um like I've got the I like I've got like a selection of uh Arsene Lupin stories and it's got those in it and I think he's called something like Homelock Shears or something <laughs> I have, which, is, um, which even now of... is like, <laughs> I have Lupin stories on my Kindle, and I'll like read the short ones every once in a while. Like I'll just pick a random one, and uh, I don't think I have any of those ones though. Where he meets Sherlock, I know of them though. But they are they are pretty good, but they are just like I'm sure they're just destructive. Holmes and Watson like do not come out of them. They are not flattering <laughs> to Holmes and Watson. And I think there was a kind of like, you know, English-French rivalry uh, thing a always bit, going yeah. on. And then there's good old Raffles, Gentleman Thief. Yeah, R- Raffles, like, it's like, is kind of a rip-off of the guy who ripped off Conan Doyle. And Conan I know! This is brother-in-law. It's, <laughs> it's like... It's amazing. And his his chronicler's name is Bunny. So their names was Raffles and Bunny, and I'm sorry, that's amazing. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Where's my show? Um, Where's my shows and my movies? My games, there have, come there on. Have been, there have been Raffles shows, I'm sure. Raffles is an interesting case because it's it's something where it's like, it should almost be as famous as Sherlock Holmes, but it's not. 
And yeah. I think it's like Sherlock Holmes has possibly like displaced like too much water. <laughs> like in, in, in pop culture terms that even, you know, other detective characters like Sexton Blake, people have like hardly ever heard of. Yeah. Conan Doyle really did something to like the the mystery genre. The same it's the same a similar thing to what Tolkien did with fantasy. Terry Terry Pratchett, um he wrote uh, a thing that I've always liked about Tolkien in terms of like, you know, like the way Tolkien applies to fantasy, but it also I think applies to Conan Doyle and and the mystery genre. Where Terry Pratchett he said that Tolkien was like Mount Fuji in a lot of uh, you know like um like you know like Japanese artwork. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's in the distance and it, you know it, it's there's barely like there's like it's it's a, it's a suggestion more than anything. And then there's sometimes where it it fills like the whole of the it fills like the whole of the frame and there's sometimes where it's you know it's it's entirely absent which means that the artist has deliberately chosen not to include it or they're standing on the mountain. And I think that all of those things kind of apply in terms of like, you know, Conan Doyle and mysteries. It's like, I think most people, even if they've never like read a Sherlock Holmes book or seen a Sherlock Holmes movie or anything, whatever mystery stuff that they have seen been influenced by, like if you go back far enough, you will probably find Sherlock Holmes somewhere in its, like in its DNA and it's like molecular structure somewhere i agree with you i think it's to the point where if you've seen like law and order episodes (laughs) you've seen all those and for some reason you have to go and read a sherlock story i believe someone like that would be pleasantly surprised to find that they have all the tools and the understanding of how to read a sherlock story already and that's entirely because it has gone on to influence law and order (laughs) like that's the, the genetic, genetic chain is that far and that long and that wide, in my own opinion. And part of me wants to say that's hyperboil and it's giving it too much credit, and the other part of me feels like it's true, that the scope is that deep and wide. Yeah, scope is, is definitely, the I think, probably one of the most appropriate words that you could use in terms of the effect that Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle have had. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, again, Conan Doyle was a bit resentful of the whole thing, And I don't know if it's necessarily, I mean, he wrote it, so you have to give him credit. But at the same time, I think a lot of the legwork has been done by audiences, by people, by the fans and keeping this going and alive for as long as it has. I mean, once he handed it off, it's, it's been everybody else, you know, keeping the flames going. And that's gone on to influence everything, which is beautiful in a weird (laughs) way. I can't remember what it was because I own so many of them, but there has been a Sherlock Holmes book that I've read that was it was written by someone who wasn't Conan Doyle. I think it might have been All Consuming Fire, uh, the Doctor Who slash Cthulhu slash Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> uh, not slash in that sense. Good God, no book that I mentioned earlier, but something I've read that like a Sherlock Holmes book by other hands has included. In the preface, it's like a telegram uh, from Conan Doyle to the actor manager, uh, William Gillette, who played Holmes on stage and is kind of responsible for uh, like the stereotypical, almost like the decontextualized Sherlock Holmes, you know, because he did he wore the houndstooth cape and the deerstalker hat and he had like the enormous like calabash pipe, the one that looks like a saxophone, like and he chose like the biggest pipe that he could so he could be seen from the cheap seats at the back. <laughs> and he sent a telegram to Conan Doyle which said, may I marry Holmes? Which means, you know, can I write a story where he gets married? Rather than, can I 
personally marry her, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And Conan Doyle sent him a telegram back that said, you may marry him or murder him or do whatever you wish with him. So I think that that's kind of like justification enough for for anyone to to write pretty much any, like you can tell like whatever Sherlock Holmes story that you want. And even if Conan Doyle was alive and his opinions mattered. Yeah. That sounds harsher than I meant it to, but it's like, <laughs> I think just he was so done with Sherlock Holmes at so, such an early point of their association. Like, at this point, if he was still around, he honestly wouldn't care. So write your, you know, gay robot Sherlock AU fan fiction, get it published as a book, make millions of pounds or dollars or euros, whatever you when it is most useful to you, go forth and multiply. I've always been, I don't know, I've always liked the the knowledge that he just didn't give a shit, really. It's nice. It's a nice change up. I, I, <laughs> a, a, potent, a potent lesson for creators everywhere, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's probably going to do us for an episode. Oh my gosh, yes. We wrap <sighs> this sucker up. We like Sherlock, everybody. It's good. <laughs> I think that's our consensus, is it's, um... Sherlock Holmes is good, and uh, we like it. If And if you've made it this far into a podcast of two people you probably don't oh know talking God. about it, then if you don't like Sherlock Holmes, what are you even doing? I know, right? What are you doing? You're, you're either related to us, or you've <laughs> drastically lost control of your life. So <laughs> um, we'll, leave it, we'll leave it there until next week. Uh, so I've been Matty, and joining me again has been Christy. This has been Sherlocktober, a most irregular podcast. And thank you for joining us. And we will see you next week. Aloha.